Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Acts chapter 6, the book of Acts chapter 6. We began a series this morning entitled Great Expectations. What is expected of church members or attendees? What is expected of folks who are members of and attend our church? This morning, we said from Hebrews chapter 10 that we expect our folks to show up and to show out. We expect our people to regularly and frequently attend our worship services. And we listed several reasons uh, that that is important. Tonight, uh, I want us to look at Acts chapter 6. It hasn't been too long since we addressed uh, Acts chapter 6. Two weeks ago at John, uh, Brother John's uh, ordination. I want to look at it from a a different perspective tonight. The, The title of this message within the Great Expectation series is Expecting the Doable. Expecting the doable. Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to serve tables. Brothers, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, And laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly. And a number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, your word is precious to us. We're grateful that we have it, that we have access to it. We're reminded... Lately, that every time we open your word, we should not do it in a haphazard way, nor take for granted the tracks of people throughout history, many of whom gave their lives so that we could have access to a Bible in our own language. So we're thankful for the Bible. Most thankful that the Bible points us to you, and you are the object, the person whom we worship. Speak to us, Lord, tonight. We want to know what you expect of us, and then give us the spirit and the power and the grace to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Most of you know that uh, Amanda, my wife, is a retired hairstylist. Um, She was a beautician for over 20 years before we moved down to Palmetto, and she retired at the same time that we moved down to Palmetto. And she still cuts my hair uh, at a discount, of course. And so I appreciate that uh, very much. Um, 
There were many times, though, and Amanda would come home and she would tell me about times back when she was cutting hair on a, uh, a, a full-time basis, that people would come into the hair shop. Usually it'd be somebody uh, who would come into the hair shop with, uh, how many of you remember Phyllis Diller? Do you remember Phyllis Diller? How many of you? They would come in with a Phyllis Diller haircut wanting a uh, they would come in with a Phyllis Diller hairstyle and they wanted a Cindy Crawford haircut. Everybody know Cindy Crawford? Hello? Okay. And usually they would come in and they would have a picture of the actress or the model or whoever it was that they wanted their hair to look like. And sometimes it's possible to do that. Most of the time, honestly, it's not. And Amanda would look at the picture and she would look at the person And although she never said this, which is really amazing to me, knowing my wife, she never said this. She thought, I'm a beautician, not a magician. She has uh, a mug, a coffee mug that someone gave her. And the coffee mug has writing on the side of it. And here's what it says. It says, hairstylist, the most creative job in the world. It involves tact, style, Diplomacy, creativity, fashion, stamina, energy, marriage counseling, psychology, designing, taste. Anyone who can handle all this is someone very special. In fact, our daughter-in-law, Zach's wife, uh, once after they got married, she decided to go to cosmetology school. She had, uh, uh, when she was single down in Florida, she was uh, going to school to be a, a counselor. Uh, and uh, when she came up here and decided to go out of counseling and into cosmetology, Amanda had a talk with her. It was an unsuccessful talk, but she told her, she said, McCole, do you realize you're going to be doing the same thing plus cutting hair for a whole lot less money? You could go ahead and get your counseling degree. You wouldn't have to cut anybody's hair, and you'd do the same thing outside of the hair but make more money. It didn't do any good. Uh, but it is true, I think, that, a, uh, and I, I really believe that a hairstylist ought to be required to get a psychology degree because they do more psychological counseling than almost anybody else. And I'll tell you why, because they're not having to pay for the counseling. Yeah, all they're having to pay for is the hairstyle, but not the counseling, but they do a whole lot of counseling. One of Amanda's favorite customers was a lady, is a lady named Jean Rhodes. Jean and her husband, Jim, uh, even since we came down to Palmetto, they have actually driven down here from coming to worship with us on Sunday morning. She and Amanda, uh, even though Jean was uh, a senior citizen, they kind of have the same personalities. And I guess that's why they got along so well. Jean's husband, Jim, died last year not uh, too many months ago last year, and Amanda and I uh, drove up to be with Jean for Jim's funeral. At one point while Amanda was, uh, while we were living up there and coming and she was cutting Jean's hair, uh, Jean brought Amanda a little statuette. It's identical to that one up there. I don't know how well you can make out what it is, but that's a lady. Uh, She looks like she's been through a lot. She has rollers in her hair. She is also standing on rollers. And then under the rollers, there's a platform with engraved words on it. She has in her front pouch a hair dryer, 
brush, comb, scissors, and a razor. She has in her back pocket behind her a pistol. She's a hairstylist. And at the bottom of the platform are the words, I'm a beautician, not a magician. That statuette is a reminder to customers that they can have unrealistic expectations of their hairdressers. Acts chapter 6 opens with the first major internal conflict in the new Christian church. It was a conflict that arose in large part because the church, growing rapidly, very rapidly, had come to expect unrealistic things from the apostles. They had come to expect the apostles to do things for them that the apostles literally could not do. And so what was happening was, when the church was small, the apostles could both preach, pray, and study, and also minister to of the benevolent needs of the congregation. But as the church grew, and as you know, it did grow rapidly. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people saved. Sometime later, you get up to 5,000, then 8,000 people. Not all of them stayed in Jerusalem. Some of them did. The church was large in a very, very short time. And so, with an increased membership, there, there came with it increased benevolent needs And the apostles, who were the pastors, the ministers of this early church, they were expected to do all of this ministering. And they couldn't. And so there were some people who needed ministry, legitimately needed ministry, but they were being overlooked in the daily ministry. And it just so happened that it was a particular group. There were... Uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews, there were Greek-speaking Jews, and among the Greek-speaking Jews, there were some widows who were being left out of the daily benevolent ministry. And they started complaining. They started complaining first to their families, and then their families started complaining to other people in the church. There arose a division between the Hebrew the Hebraic Jew, Jewish Christians, and the Greek Jewish Christians. And finally, the complaint went from there to the apostles. And it came in the form of criticisms. It came in the form of complaints. Within the church, these people were being overlooked. The people began complaining about how the ministers, the apostles in this case, were slack in doing their jobs. That's not unusual for us to complain in church. Uh, probably all of us have done it from time to time. We preachers have our own share of complaining for sure. But it's not unusual to hear criticisms and complaints in church. But you know, there's something about this thing that comforts me a little bit. Because I figure if Peter and James and John and later Paul can incur criticism for the way they did or didn't lead the church, then I can easily expect it myself. I'm in good company. Not that I'm in the same company as a Paul, John, James, and Peter, but in terms of receiving complaints, I am. Moses in the Old Testament, they were constantly complaining against him. Even his uh, brother and his uh, 
uh, family members complained against him at one point, along with all the other people. And I'm thinking, if Moses could be complained against, certainly I can. And then there are folks like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Jeremiah, who preached 50 years, nobody ever really came forward. They just complained about him. Finally, probably had him sent to his death in Egypt. If they can incur the complaints, well, I guess certainly that I can. But it leads me to the second great expectation that we should expect of each other. And here's what it is. It is expected that we in church will have realistic expectations of each other. Too often, however, I think, we simply expect too much of each other. I believe that church people expect too much of their pastors and pastoral staff. And yes, the pastoral staff often expects too much of you. Now, I think we ought to have some expectations. That's what this series is all about. But we can expect things that are just overkill. Ed Stetzer is president of Lifeway Research. That's the Southern Baptist uh, Research Group. He also has authored, authored uh, numerous books. He recently wrote a blog about the unrealistic expectations of church members. And he blames this phenomenon of expecting unrealistic things of each other on a consumeristic church, on consumerism infiltrating church. And here's what he said. He said, quote, millions of Americans live in the shadow of churches that have become consumer Christian centers. But pastors are ruined and the mission of God is cheated when consumers enjoy goods and services from their local church. In their book, God is Back, John Micklewaite and Adrian Wooldridge describe the state of the American church today as the Disneyfication of God or Christianity light, a bland and sanitized faith that is about as dramatic as the average shopping mall, they said. Ed Stetzer went on to say, believers who think like consumers like customers, contribute to the underachieving church in America. The damages, though, he says, move far beyond ineptness at engaging the mission of God. He says the inessence, the incessant demands of a consumer congregation causes irreparable damage to those who lead such congregations. So what can we do about this fact that we tend to expect too much from each other. Well, let me offer you some answers that I think are drawn from this text. The first thing I think we can say is that we can simply expect that in church, some people are going to complain. Some people are going to complain. Why is that? We wouldn't expect those kind of things out of church. Yes, we can. And I'll tell you why. Because we're human beings. And we all have our uh, unique opinions about things. And we all have uh, directions that we'd like for us all to go in. And sometimes they're not going to agree. Quite often they're not. We can expect that some people are going to complain. And not only is there nothing, nothing that we can do about it in some cases, but there shouldn't be anything we can do about it. Although it's troubling at times and can be annoying at other times, 
It's really good that we have the freedom to do so. Secondly, not only can we expect that some people are going to complain, but we must distinguish between legitimate and unrealistic expectations. We must realize that when expectations are made upon us, whether it's me as a pastor making expectations of you or you having expectations of the pastor and the staff, we must make a distinction between what is a legitimate expectation on one hand and what is an illegitimate and unrealistic expectation on the other. Now let's get back to the text here. The Hebraic widow, uh, the Greek widows, Greek-speaking widows, were being overlooked in the daily benevolence ministry. They needed ministry. The ministry to them that was being neglected was a legitimate ministry. That, that these ladies should be ministered to, the expectation that they should be ministered to, was a legitimate expectation. It was legitimate What was illegitimate and unrealistic is to expect the apostles to do it after the church had grown to such a large extent. Now, we could say, well, because of the fact that the apostles certainly can't do it, then the whole expectation is unrealistic. But we'd be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. These ladies needed ministering to, but they did not need ministering to by the apostles because the apostles simply could not do it. We must distinguish between what is a legitimate expectation versus what is an illegitimate and unexpected expectation that we place on each other. Number three, it's important when we have folks who expect something of us that we tackle the problem and not the people. Tackle the problem, not The people, a lot of people, it seems, have become experts at attacking other people. Not many people seem to care about attacking the problems that we as people face. But if we would focus our energies on attacking the problems and not the people, we would advance a whole lot better. We would progress a whole lot farther. The apostles realizing the legitimacy of ministering to these widows, but not accepting the unrealistic expectation that they should be the ones doing it, instead dealt with the problem, not the people. Did you notice when the folks complained to them, at no time did the apostles stand up and say, well, who in the world said that? What are you doing saying that? What do you mean these, these widows are complaining? When, which one of them started? There was none of that kind of thing, which is so often what we do. Instead, they said, okay, look, this is a legitimate ministry here, but it's not right that we do it. But somebody needs to do it. And so let's set up a new team of guys We believe that these guys ended up being the first deacons, even though that term is not used here. Let's set up a new team of guys, and they can be in charge of overseeing this ministry. And at that point, something clicked with the church. They had been about the process of complaining against the apostles for not doing the ministry. Now the apostles, rather than biting them back, said, let's attack the problem. Let's put some people over this because we don't have time to do this. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be reaching people. We need to be preaching the gospel. So let's set up a team. 
The church then did something ingenious, I think. You and I might not be able to see this with our English versions of the scriptures, but the seven men they chose had Greek names. In other words, they didn't choose some of the Hebraic Jews to go oversee this responsibility of ministering to the Greek widows. They chose some of the folks who'd been potentially complaining to do the job. They chose some of the ones who brought the problem to the attention of the apostles, and the apostles had the church to choose them. The apostles didn't do it, the church did. Choose you out among you, the apostles said. And they chose seven men, Greek names, which means they were within the group the Greek group to which the ladies who were being overlooked belonged. Tackle the problem, not the people. Number four, divvy up the problem among the people. Divvy up the problem among the people. I think it's interesting here that the uh, apostles didn't stand up and say, "Let's, let's pick one person to oversee this deal. They said, choose you out among you seven men. Seven people. They knew that uh, because the church had grown very rapidly, that even a benevolent ministry, any ministry in the church, could very quickly grow beyond the grasp of a single person or even two or three persons. And so they said, hey, we need to take this this elephant of a task and let's let's divide it up among bite-sized pieces so that we can handle it. We need each other to handle things like that. And so they chose these seven men, more than one person, more than two, more than three, seven men. And later on, I'm sure that it included far more than just those seven. Because by the time Paul is writing letters to the church at Philippi and the church at Colossae and the church at Corinth and the church uh, at Thessalonica, he's writing in part to the pastors and the deacons who are there. You want a problem? You, You see a problem? Divvy it up. Tackle the problem, not the people, but divvy up the problem among the people so that we all don't have such a uh, Herculean task by ourselves. And then finally, we must realize that nobody's perfect. I see that even among the apostles. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas decide to go preach on the first missionary journey. They get a third of the way in there. They've taken Barnabas's uh, relative, nephew probably, John Mark. About a third of the way into the journey, John Mark gets cold feet, turns around, goes home. Bar- Barnabas and Paul finish their journey. They come back. They give a report to the church at Antioch. They spend some time resting. And then finally, Barnabas says, Paul, we need to go back and minister to all those churches that we, that we, had, that we started during the first journey just to see how they're going. Paul says, that's a great idea. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, no. Yeah, let's take No. And as you know, Acts chapters 12 and 13, there arose such an argument between these two Christian giants, missionary giants, that they parted ways. They couldn't even get along to do the job together. Now later on, when Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, he talks about John Mark. He said, now, you know John Mark is coming to you. He's like a son to me. This is far later. He's made up with John Mark. 
And it makes me wonder, I can't say for sure, but it makes me wonder whether or not Paul was right in what all he did there with Barnabas. On another occasion, the giant Peter. You know how Peter is. He's the guy with a foot-shaped mouth. He puts his foot in his mouth so often. One day after the church had already decided in Acts chapter 15 that they were going to accept Gentile uh, believers by grace through faith, that they were not going to put them through having to go through all the Jewish rituals and the circumcision and all that kind of thing. And then sometime later... Paul comes up on Peter, and Peter is shying away from those Gentile converts when some Jewish believers come around. And Paul confronted him right there at the table. Boy, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall of that conversation? Not that I love to be in the part of controversy, but I think I'd love to have heard that conversation. Paul is confronting Peter over Peter doing something wrong. We must realize that nobody is perfect. One writer put it this way in an article I read recently. Realize that nobody's perfect. Nobody can read your mind. Nobody can see how you'd like to be treated. No human has the potential to fulfill everyone's expectations. It's just not possible. Revise expectations of people for your own health. One reason to take unrealistic expectations seriously is that studies have shown that people who harbor unrealistic expectations of others are especially prone to anxiety, depression, and unhappiness. Being more realistic, she said, may increase your contentment and overall psychological as well as spiritual health. You remember Margaret Mitchell? Hello? Gone with the wind. Margaret Mitchell once said, life is under no obligation to give us what we expect. Poe Bronson, a journalist, said, if you want to give yourself a fair chance to succeed in life, never expect too much too soon. And Lucy Larkham, who wrote a book entitled A New England Girlhood, said this, it is the greatest of all mistakes to begin life with the expectation that is going to be easy or even with the wish to have it so. I think it is more important than we realize that you and I and all the people who make up our church family, that we stop and we think about what we expect of each other and what we expect of our leaders and what our leaders expect of you. We need to expect some things. I'm not saying to put the standard too low. But that has rarely been the problem, I think. You can't be everything, nor should you be expected to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word, as usual, teaches us critical insights about the way to do church. So clear in this chapter that there were legitimate needs and legitimate expectations, but there were unrealistic expectations placed upon the apostles. But I thank you that they gave us an example, a really great example of not returning fire against the people, But instead, they joined with the people 
to attack the problem and divide it up so that it could be easily handled. May we learn from their example. Teach us, Lord, to govern our expectations so that they remain within realistic parameters. In Jesus' name, amen.